This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And I'm joined in the studio by my dear friend and colleague, the one and only Ann Greenhall, <laughs> Dr. G, <laughs> Deputy Director. Oh, it's great to be here with you, Jeff. And we have a bit of a treat in terms of our content tonight because we are going to be uh, sharing with you, our loyal listeners, uh, two fantastic talks from our mm-hmm. recent leadership conference. And so um, this is our, our second installment, our second special show that features that leadership conference um, content. And uh, our first guest or our first highlight is going to be Henry Timms and Jeremy Hymans. And they are authors of a new book called New Power, How Power Works in Our Hyperconnected World and How to Make It Work for You. And our listeners will learn about why legitimacy, control, and commitment are part of this concept. So let's listen in. We're going to begin today by talking uh, about Harvey Weinstein. And, and by the way, to, to get to tell us apart, because I know we look very similar, I'm Jeremy, the, the Australian, and this is the, uh, my, my colonial oppressor, Henry, from the United <laughs> Kingdom. I, I actually take, I take, I take exception. So, <laughs> so, 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 Henry, tell us about Harvey Weinstein. Well, so if you think about uh, how Harvey Weinstein uh, used power, so he think about he had power. It was a currency, right? He hoarded it all up. He could spend it all down. He could greenlight movies. He could start and stop careers. He could start and stop rumors. He could start and stop allegations. There was a survey over the last 30 years of uh, who was thanked most often from the stage of the Academy Awards. In joint first place was Harvey Weinstein and God. That was the kind of power Harvey Weinstein had. Think how different that is to the power of a movement like Me Too. So if you think about the power of Harvey as the kind of power that you can hoard, right? It, it, its strength comes from your ability to hoard it. The Me Too movement that ultimately helped to topple Harvey and is currently toppling many, many others, you know, has a very different kind of life force. You can think of it as less like a currency and more like a current. It's something that surges around the world. There is no one leader. It originated with a woman called Tarana Burke 10 years ago. But then kind of out of nowhere in November of 2017, it sort of catches on like wildfire. And as it does, it moves and changes shape. So in each geography it moves, it adapts to that place um, in, a, in a way that is ownerless. In France, uh, Me Too became denounce your pig, which we thought was very French and maybe, a, may, maybe more visceral. Um, and in each, each industry, as we're all seeing in our respective industries, the movement takes shape. It was unlocked by these collective action dynamics that meant that one person's testimony strengthened the ability of the next person to testify and the next after that. So think about how these two very different forms of power work. And let's now also talk about an example from the business world. So... In California, Airbnb had some legislation they didn't like the look of, which was going to um, slow down their business. So they did what you would normally do if you were a company trying to uh, prevent some legislation. You hired some lobbyists, and they worked the corridors of power. 
But they did something else too. They mobilized their guests and their hosts and their wider community to do their lobbying work for them. And so this legislation was defeated not just because they had lobbyists, but because 250,000 doors were knocked on by people who were not on their payroll. They mobilized their wider community to serve their regulatory ends. Story number three. So this uh, young woman on the right is uh, a woman called Aksa Mahmoud. She, at the age of 17, uh, went from her comfortable upbringing in Glasgow, where she was known as a very normal kid who loved Harry Potter, went to good schools. She found her way from the bus station in Glasgow, and the next time her parents heard from her, she was calling from Syria. She joined the Islamic State. She'd been recruited by and then became one of the most effective girl-to-girl recruiters for the Islamic State. So we studied her techniques as part of the book, and she built this sort of vast network of girls um, in a way that might seem banal, but was very potent. She had a Tumblr that was full of memes and emojis about making jihad, about how to leave your parents behind, about what toiletries you need to take when you're coming to Syria. Um, And in all of those ways, she created the kind of intensity and proximity that then lured a number of other Western girls over to Syria to join her. And she became the leader of this kind of online tribe. Think about how different that is to the way the US government then responded to this very emergent, very diffuse threat that ISIS posed. So just as Aksa Mahmoud is building this girl-to-girl network, this highly sophisticated kind of distributed technological network, the US government is relying on a tactic first used in the First World War 100 years before. And they are literally flying bombers over Iraq and Syria and dropping cartoons, paper cartoons, from the back of these bombers, which land down on the heads of the civilian population, which illustrate how bad life will be if you become a jihadi. Um, That does not prove super successful, so they shift to social media. They realize they need to embrace social media. And so what better to dissuade a potential jihadi than a Twitter account in in English titled Think Again, Turn Away, which which scolds our potential jihadis um, with the obvious the obvious symbol of dissuasion, the, the US State Department logo. Because, because, <laughs> so because if you think, potential jihadis are never skeptical about US foreign policy. Um, so as you think about these three stories, right, three very different stories. It's a story, um, it's a story of a business who are mobilizing a, a crowd in service of their agenda. It's a story um, of women around the world who are, who are mobilizing a network uh, to push for justice and equality. It's a story of a girl leaving her bedroom and becoming a recruiter and building a network around the world. Um, what these very different stories have in common is what we see as the kind of the, the leading skill of our age. And we call this new power. And if you want to think about what new power is, new power is this essential skill which is to harness the energy of the connected crowd. And as you survey the world right now and think about who's winning, who's leading in all, amongst all of these seismic shifts, the people who are leading are those people who understand how to use and deploy new power. And, and here's how we think about new power and the differences between new power and old power. So this work came out of a Harvard Business Review article that Henry and I wrote a few years ago. We've been thinking for a number of years about how to define these two different ways to exercise power in a way that gives people a language and a lens to understand some of the things that we all feel are changing but have found quite hard to articulate. So we talked about this difference between power as currency and power as current. If you think about the models in our world today, you see that some are based on a mass participatory model. Facebook, whether we like it or not, is based on, it's a business model that's based on harnessing our participatory energies. 
but there are obviously many business models that are based instead on the principle um, purely of, of download. So you've got the difference between upload and download, you've got the difference between models that tend to be peer-driven and leader-driven, um, and of course you have these differences between models that rely on genuine communities that they try to cultivate um, and more transactional relationships between customers and consumers. And then we see how this maps on, and we did this in the HBR piece and now the book, to these different mindsets. And we see these as very, um, as not necessarily kind of contradictory. One of the points that we make in the book is not old power bad, new power good. In fact, a principal argument is that in order to be effective in the 21st century, you actually need how to learn how to deploy the methods and the mindsets of both old and new power. And this is how we characterize those values. So if you think about some of the differences, think about some of the tensions, think about the seismic shifts we're addressing today. Some of those shifts really come from a world, a tension, a battle and balance between people who hold old power values and people who hold new power values. So to sketch out a couple, um, think about the tension between expertise, professionalism, on one hand, that old power value, and then make a culture, that do-it-ourselves ethic on another hand. Think about the Brexit debate. You remember the language of that was around, we've had enough of experts. We want the crowd to take things back. Think about the attacks we are seeing uh, across the world on evidence, on reason, on empiricism. Think about that particular tension playing out. Or think about the way in which we think about affiliation. Um, we used to me measure civic participation essentially as an exercise in ongoing commitment. You know, are we able to go to a club every Wednesday and be a deputy secretary for four and a half years? That's how we measured civic participation. Contrast that to the surges of things like the Women's March, um, which aren't about long-term affiliation. They're about moments of great intensity, but offer a different kind of a civic contribution. And then thirdly, think about a worldview, an old power value worldview, which says it's all about competition. It's all about that. And think about the contrast between that and a collaborative platform uh, like an Airbnb, where the nature of that platform means that you have to collaborate as part of a community if you want to get on and get ahead. Um, I want to underscore one thing which Jeremy just said, which is our central argument is not get rid of old power and pivot to new power. There are moments that old power matters enormously. There are moments you would not want any new power. I had my appendix taken out uh, eight weeks ago. The last thing in the world you would want is a team of new power surgeons. <laughs> some hipsters from Brooklyn who had uh, crowdsourced some drills from Reddit and taught themselves via Tumblr how to take out an appendix. Um, that is not what you need. You want Dr. Chu, who has been doing this for 15 years and has done it a thousand times. So we want to make an argument for old power today, but, but I want to, um, to underscore that argument a little, which is to say this. One of the great concerns we have, and I, and I think this is especially important to underscore this concern in an academic environment, is um, the old power values of expertise, um, of, of deep research, of learning, of truth. Um, those values are under siege. Uh, right now. And it used to be that truth was enough. We could come into the marketplace and say, we, ha we have our truth on our side, we are going to win out. But actually, in a world where people like Aksa Mahmoud can spread her ideas so effectively, one great challenge to the academic community in particular is, are we entering this debate armed with little more than a white paper and a symposium? Are we able to use the new power tools of our age and use those tools to mobilize and enable some of those old power values that we deeply need in the marketplace right now? Because you look at the battle between the climate scientists and the climate deniers, the health professionals um, and the anti-vaxxers, the, the crazies on the internet and the voices of the enlightenment. You look at those battles and those who are most reasonable are not those coming out on top. 
So here's another way to think about the difference between old and new power. Who knows what this is? Seems like an age-appropriate group to ask that question to. <laughs> I know, what are you saying? What, what, what is that called? Oh, I'm, 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 I'm with them. I'm, I play Tetris. Um, so, so this is Tetris, right? Think of this as a, as, a, as a simple allegory for old power, right? It's a block-based game. The blocks are falling on top of you. Your job is to sort them out into neat rows, and you're eventually overwhelmed by them. Uh, anyone know who invented Tetris? Ah, it's fascinating. The Soviets. So the kind of grand conspiracy we have about Tetris is it was invented by the Soviets to distract a generation of Americans during the Cold War. <laughs> and it worked. Um, now think about, um, think about the difference between Tetris and this platform. What's this platform? What have we depicted here? Right. So, so this is... Um, uh, also a block-based game, so it has similar dynamics in that sense, but uh, it's entirely differently constructed. Everything in Minecraft is made by its participants. There are essentially no rules. So every block you see built is built in that way rather than a function of, uh, of the Tetris dynamics. So one of the big dynamics in the world today are those uh, models and mindsets that are closer to Tetris and those models and mindsets that are closer to Minecraft and how those tensions play out. There was a funny story that was one of the, um, in Norway, the citizens of Norway rebuilt the entire state of Norway in Minecraft at scale. Right? Pretty amazing contribution. They collaborated to recreate the whole of, of Norway. And the day before they unveiled Minecraft Norway, a naughty American snuck in and built a Minecraft Stars and Stripes flag and planted it in the middle of Minecraft Norway and, and claimed Minecraft Norway for Uncle Sam. Okay. Almost the seal of the State Department on Twitter. So, so um, as you guys all know, as, as most of you are business school graduates, you know that um, when we first published this in HBR, we basically signed a contract that said we must include a two-by-two two matrix in our, in our article. So this was our two-by-two two matrix. We call it the New Power Compass. And on that framework, we lay out uh, essentially two dimensions. One are models. So we, we mapped the organizations and companies of our time according to whether their model was, and their fu fundamental business model was more based on uh, participation, on peer collaboration, new power, or based on capture, um, consolidation, um, uh, traditional dynamics in old power. And we mapped the values that we went and ran you through earlier. Do, does the mindset and values and behavior of the organization map more to old power or new power? And so why don't we take on a little tour of the compass? Henry, why don't we start with the castle quadrant? So the bottom left is those organizations, many of whom really won out in the 20th century and, and continue to win out now, who have old power models and old power values. So think of the, the Nobel Prize, a group of experts behind closed doors, spend some time, decide who ought to be awarded the prize, and then dole it out to the world. Think about uh, the, the IRS, make a bunch of decisions on our behalf, hand us a tax return, we have no real agency, we just pay our bills. Um, think too, uh, just as an interesting counterpoint, about Apple. So Apple's an interesting company, right? Because one of the ways people conflate this is they think new technology or technology means new power. Um, and, and that's not at all our argument. In fact, there are plenty of people using 
uh, technology in deeply old power ways. We, we like to point out that even the Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad has a Facebook page. Um, that doesn't mean he's embracing you know, the power of participation. Now, in the case of Apple, you know, here's a company whose business model is very old power. It's based on the genius product designer in Cupertino who knows what we want before we know that we want it, and that product descends upon us, and our only real engagement is to, is to buy, right? It's a, it's a brand that is there to be revered and admired, but not really engaged with uh, in a participatory way. It's also, in terms of its values, it's not known as a great collaborator. It's notoriously secretive. It's uncollaborative, right? It's very successful. So it's important to understand that this, essentially the most valuable company in the world, um, you know, is operating successfully within this castle's quadrant. But we obviously can't all be Apple. And that takes us to the cheerleaders. So here we see in the bottom right, which is those organizations who have essentially an old power model still, but are increasingly demonstrating new power values. Let's, let's pick Patagonia. So Patagonia sells clothes and, and, and shoes, so far so old power. What's interesting is how they're beginning to experiment a lot with new power values. So they've become radically transparent about their supply chain, even some aspects of that which are quite challenging. They've started to build activism platforms around their brand. So they're actually trying to see their consumers much more as activists around the brands of Patagonia. And so they're beginning to shift their way up towards the top right where you see new power meet new power. And so in this quadrant, you know, you, you have a very big range of organizations. So you've got um, uh, much more radically decentralized, what we would call leader full um, uh, movements like Black Lives Matter, which we profile in detail in, in the book. Um, but that's also very different as a model to something like Airbnb. But Airbnb is also deploying some of the same um, methods and mindsets. So Airbnb has built a very effective collaborative platform and unlike some of the companies we're about to talk about in the co-opted platform, a co-opted quadrant, it's done a pretty good job of cultivating that community um, and making that community feel bought in, as we described at the beginning of, um, of this presentation. Which brings us to this really interesting quadrant, we think, um, where some of the most effective and we would argue dangerous actors in the world live, which is the co-opter quadrant. So here what you see is organizations who have worked out their new power models but actually default to a set of old power values. So let's think about Facebook. Facebook has 2 billion, actually has 1.5 billion users now because they realized 500 million were false. So they have 1.5 <laughs> billion users around the world. Um, 500 million were in like Vladivostok, basically. Yeah, actually, it was most of my friends. Yeah. So um, the, it, was, it was a big blow for the Henry Tim's Facebook account. Um, so the, uh, the new power model, so the new power model, you, it, it's mass, it, this incredible new machine of participation, right? It, it, Facebook exists because they worked out how to capture the energy of the crowd so effectively. Um, but their values are very old power. So the governance of Facebook is very shrouded and actually is held up in, in one man. Mark Zuckerberg is, is not going to make this mistake Steve Jobs did of being ousted from his own company. The, the governance is very shrouded. The algorithm is hidden from us. The, the algorithm that will shape all of our days today, uh, let alone our lives, let alone our democracies, is something we have no real input into how it works and how it governs. The value created by Facebook for all of the, quote, power to share that we have, close quotes, the value extracted by Facebook doesn't end up in our hands, we contribute our data and they extract the proceeds. So you end up in this interesting square where you're seeing these co-op the model where new power is being co-opted by people who are working out how to get all that participation pushing towards them. I'm Jeff Glyde and you're listening to a presentation from our recent leadership conference, Henry Timms and Jeremy Hyman's co-author of New Power, How Power Works in Our Hyperconnected 
world and how to make it work for you. In this segment, they've asked the audience to talk among themselves and think about their own organizations, where they are now and where they should be in five years. Why don't we take a little tour? Um, where Put up your hand if you think you currently were in the castles quadrant, the right now perspective. Wow, a sea of hands, a sea of hands. All right, who wants to stay in the castle quadrant? Hands up. Okay, some good stalwart um, old power folks. Um, and how many people wanted to move from the castles quadrant either to, uh, you know, to any of the three really, but particularly to crowds or cheerleaders? Interesting. All right, so why don't we unpack that a little bit? Does someone want to uh, describe the journey that they want to be on? Michelle Stewart um, worked for a chemical company in Tennessee, and so lots of governance, lots of uh, policies, procedures, hierarchy, but we are also looking at how do we understand, you know, a chemical company, you wouldn't know our products, but you might know, you know, the end products they go into. So we're working through a process where we're asking people to be more innovative, to share more information, and to work more closely with their customers, with our, the end markets, mm. to understand what the customers really want, and then working with them to show them how we can help them get there with their customers. So, so starting to um, try to ask people to think differently, and it's a real culture change for us, I a bet. behavior and principles change. Mm. I bet. Fascinating. Sorry to have to move on, but what we would encourage all of you to do is to... Um, do this exercise with your own teams because it's a really useful exercise even just to flesh out where people are at um, intellectually and emotionally in, in terms of this kind of change um, and by all means tell us what happens and if it devolves into chaos tell us that too um, and so you know it's a good um, segue to this question of how big organizations um, make this transition to integrating some of these new power methods and mindsets into their work and to do that we're going to start by telling you a story from Henry's place of birth, um, the United Kingdom. So there was a big UK science uh, governmental agency called NERC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and they had just commissioned a new Arctic Explorer ship, here it is, which was going to be built over the next four years, and was $300 million. And they realized that they wanted to engage the public in this work, so they launched a campaign to work out how to engage the British public in this important investment of government money, and they issued a press release that was the first worrying sign for this campaign. They issued a press release and it said, um, hashtag name our ship. We want you, the British public, to name the ship for us. You might choose a name like Adventurer or Shackleton or Endeavour. Um, that is not what turned out to happen. So they brought it out to the crowd and um, overwhelmingly the crowd's choice was RRS Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> And, and it wasn't just this, was it, Henry? Um, oh, well, uh, my favourite was actually number 10. Yeah. RRS, I like big boats and I cannot lie. <laughs> which I think, I think was sorely neglected by the public. What was wrong with the crowd? So this, this, didn't just go, um, this, this didn't just go a bit viral. This went 250 million Twitter impressions, number one trending viral. It was, so, it was such a surge of enthusiasm from the public that the guy who suggested it apologised. Um, <laughs> So, I, I'm terribly sorry but, about all this Nurk science. But then, of course, the, the crowd turned on him, so he retracted his apology uh, and said it was in the most British sense. And this was on all the TV shows, it was in all the newspapers, it crossed the ocean, it was covered by the New York Times, by CNN. The entire nation was talking about maritime science. The entire nation was talking about Boaty McBoatface. 
Uh, but there was a real, there was a real problem. Um, the science minister uh, hated this idea. The science minister, who had spent $300 million of, of government money, said, look, you're, you're not taking this seriously. We're spending this. Is, this, is, this, has gone, this is a, a, an experiment which has got out of control. I do not want to call this boat, boating <laughs> but boat face. Um, you're, you're trivializing not, science. You're trivialized, you're trivializing science. So NERC, uh, the, 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 this government agency, had a real challenge. They had a real challenge at their hands that they had on one hand, they had their paymaster uh, and their minister, who they all work for, saying this is, this is a disaster. We cannot call this boat boating at boat face. On the other hand, they had a public who were in love with this fun idea of boating at boat face, um, some in a serious way, some in a kind of trivial way. But there was a genuine surge of public enthusiasm. And it's a real story about kind of two tensions of our time, the two themes of our work, old power and new power. So here is the question for a whistle-stop conversation with your neighbor. Um, what do you do about this? <laughs> if you are the NERC leadership team, all right, in the next two minutes, you have to work out what to do. You're going to have to announce to the public whether you're going to call this boating boat face, whether you're going to change the name to keep the science minister happy, or whether you're going to do something else altogether. So uh, two minutes to talk to your neighbor. What are you going to do about naming this ship? All right, so what are we going to do? Um, the, the, the Guardian newspaper is on the phone. They're calling you up. What are you doing about this boat? Um, uh, who, who here is going to keep the name the same? Who is going to go with Boating with Boatface? Oh, yes. All right, there we are. So this, you're keeping your jobs. Congratulations. <laughs> um, who is going to change the name? All right, we have uh, some, we have some ra have radicals. Anyone um, have a novel strategy here? Uh, yes, there's a, a novel strategy over here. Okay, so what, uh, what the acronym would BMBF. be? BMBF. Right, yeah. Because what science needs is more acronyms. <laughs> Only on April 1st. Okay. So, uh, April 1st. Any more? Uh, we have a strategy at the back. Right. <laughs> so we shifted, which speeds the boat up. Uh, uh, one more at the back. <laughs> so, That's right. If you, if you give anything a knighthood, you, it, uh, it's more credible, right, for, to the Brits. Anyway. I, I, I get the impression that Boating with Boatface probably wasn't much of a monarchist. But, all right, so the... So this, this, of course, is a, this, of course, is a fun story. Um, and here's what happens in the end. What they do is they effect this kind of compromise, this slightly unconvincing compromise, where they name the boat Sir David Attenborough. And David Attenborough is this legendary British um, naturalist who is beloved by the public and in, his, in, his, in the winter of his life, and no one could really complain about that. And they name a submarine on this boat, Boaty McBoatface. So they literally, they literally sink Boaty at sea. That's the end of the story. <laughs> But it's, um, a, but it's a big missed opportunity in many ways, right? Because you think about what Henry said earlier about the threats to science right now, the threats to uh, the lack of engagement with science and facts, whereas here you could have had a huge community of people um, all over the world following the work of this otherwise quite dull research vessel. Um, you would have had a community around it um, and potentially also a funding source. So that's, you know, when we, when we, when we have this, uh, when we do this presentation at marketing conferences, everybody, like, basically by the end of this little exercise, people already have a marketing plan for the Bodie Bo Boatface merch. Um, but anyway, what we then do in the book, in all seriousness, is we try to give organizations a framework um, to think then about what they actually should do. So if you went back in time to the beginning of this journey and you were constructing the right way for NERC to engage the crowd, 
you would really use a framework like this to do that, where you would ask a series of questions about whether you are well positioned to actually engage with the crowd and how, and that helps you calibrate when to use old power and new power. So the first of these questions that we ask is about strategy. So is it strategic? Do you, is it actually in your strategic interest to use the crowd? And, and is it strategic for the crowd itself? So often with, with NERC, it wasn't strategic. They didn't really need any help. This wasn't the problem they needed to solve. They simply wanted lots of people to validate the name adventurer. But if you want to do this work properly, ask first, how is it strategic? The group at Lego have done a really good job of this work. And, and one group they always think about, the one question they always ask at Lego each day is what are we bringing to the party? What is it we as a company are bringing to our crowd, not simply what can our crowd do for us? Second question is one about legitimacy. So, you know, the problem that NERC had when they started this exercise is they'd actually never done this before, right? So they didn't have a group of citizen scientists that were engaged with their work who might deign to take the exercise seriously. So one of the most important precursors for this kind of work is you have to build some legitimacy with the crowd. Uh, uh, if there's anyone from JP Morgan here, I apologize in advance, but JP Morgan um, bungled this in, a, in an instructive way a few years ago, where without having a lot of legitimacy with the crowd, they launched a campaign on Twitter called hashtag AskJPM. And they thought that people were going to ask them questions shortly after the financial crisis about you know, advice on how to build a career in finance. And instead, people you know, asked questions like, how can you sleep at night? Um, so. <laughs> Legitimacy is important. The third's about control. So one of the kind of false binaries around new power is you either have complete control or complete chaos. Right? That's, this work often gets cast in that way, which is if you, if, you, if you let go of control, it will immediately lead to anarchy. But there's actually a way of thinking differently about how you cede the right amount of control and structure for that. So with, with NERC, they actually weren't prepared to give up control. As soon as this went in a direction they didn't like the look of, they shut the experiment down. The organizations who do this well, we, we profile in the book Local Motors, who are crowdsourcing car design, essentially. They are very intentional about how they think about releasing just the right amount of control to make their crowd a success. And then finally, perhaps most importantly, is the quality of commitment, is how you think about being committed to this work over time. So, we're going to pivot now to talking about leadership and the three essential skills of a new power leader. I just want to, with one disclaimer on this, um, Mike Yusim is here in the front row. And talking about leadership with him in the front row is like singing my way in front of Frank Sinatra. So with, with, so with, that, with that caveat, with that caveat, we're going to talk about leadership. <laughs> you've, you've really set us up for a fall here, haven't you, Henry? <laughs> So um, in the book, you know, we, we do a bunch of thinking on leadership, and, and this is a small preview of it. But one of the things that we look at um, are leaders who have this developed, sophisticated understanding of how to engage with a crowd in a way that helps them achieve their own goals. And one of the most interesting findings of our research was actually that the Pope is exhibiting a lot of these characteristics. So in the book, we talk about these three qualities. We call them signaling, structuring, and shaping. So just to quickly explain what signaling is, when the Pope first emerges from the conclave, right, the smoke billows and comes out of the conclave, at that moment when a Pope ascends, um, there are all of these gestures and symbols that are supposed to kind of elevate the power and authority of the new pontiff. But the Pope did all of these very interesting things in terms of signaling as soon as he became Pope that changed and upended those power dynamics. So instead of taking the fancy robes he's supposed to wear when he became the Pope, he said, I'm not interested in that. He said, carnival time is over. And he wore the simple white robes. 
Uh, instead of standing and elevating above his cardinals, he stood with them. And when he went out to the crowd, um, what a pope typically does when the new pope emerges to the throngs that are waiting outside the Vatican, the pope is supposed to bless the crowd. But instead, the pope asked people to bless him. And so all of those were very powerful signals that he wanted to shift the power, particularly, frankly, away from his cardinals, who had held a big lock on the Catholic Church, toward local priests and parishioners. And he very intentionally rolled out a series of these signals early in his papacy to do that. The second skill is that of structuring. So we see a lot of CEOs and leaders in particular getting good at this signaling around new power, but then actually failing to change structures. What the Pope does in an interesting way is really flatten the church, right? He's actually trying to kind of flatten, push power down into the church and out into the world. He talks about the church becoming an inverted pyramid with the clergy serving the people on top. He even, for the very first time in the history of the laity, actually surveys people to work out what they're trying to do. So he doesn't just signal for participation of his wider world, he structures for it too. And his capacity to do both of those things allows him to do the third and perhaps most effective quality of the new power leader, which he's able to shape. So shaping um, is hard, but really important, which is you think about most of us have grown up in a context where we've been able to rely on our formal authority, right? We have this job, we have this power over people within an organizational structure, within our four walls. But increasingly, we need to learn how to shape without formal authority, how to shape the norms of a crowd, sometimes redirect a crowd that has gone off track, right? That has become focused on something else, that has degenerated into mob rule. And this work of shaping is to really um, uh, create a set of norms that self-perpetuate without you. And with the Pope, he's done that really around this idea of mercy and non-judgment. So one of the most famous moments in his papacy is when he's asked about homosexuality. And um, the Pope has not changed anything about the church doctrine on homosexuality. But when he was asked about homosexuality, he said, who am I to judge? Which is actually kind of a radical statement for a Pope to make. And, so, and, and, and in doing so, while not changing the letter of the law and not relying on his formal authority, he has been moving the Catholic Church, hard as that is, away from a focus on sexual morality to the issues that he thinks the Pope should be focused on, which are questions of mercy, compassion, and equality. So you know, we're going to leave you there for now because we'd love to be able to open up for for questions. And we'd really invite questions about what's happening in your own organizations, ways that you're seeing these dynamics play out, um, or your reactions to the ideas that we've presented to you. Would you care to comment on uh, some of the comments that Elon Musk has, has made regarding Tesla structure and his desire to flatten the organization? Do you want to re remind the group or tell the group a bit more about that? For uh, it just, it's just that his He's blaming some of his firm's difficulties on uh, what he views as a bureaucratic, complex organizational structure. And his, his feeling is that one of the solutions to that is to eliminate layers of management, people who are, are uh, providing no value to the organization. In, in, his, in his own company? <laughs> That's, that's, right. that's, that's a massive buck pass, isn't it? But, but, what's, but I think what's, what's really interesting, in the book we, we, we talk about holacracy. So um, the Elon Musks of the world and the Silicon Valley set for a while fell in love with this management philosophy called holacracy. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. It's this idea of sort of self-managing teams, eliminating bureaucracy and hierarchy. And our argument in the book is actually that holacracy um, is, uh, is, is actually like new power for robots. In other words, it imposes so much process 
in, uh, in, 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 in service of supposedly flattening hierarchy, that it ends up creating even more complexity um, uh, than more traditional hierarchical structures. And we favorably contrast that to models that we see that are very promising, that aren't using as much process, but that are creating very effective, well-designed, self-managing teams. And we do see these models emerging in a bunch of places, um, but you'll have to read chapter 11 to find out more about that. Neil from Singapore. Um, I worked in financial institutions and now run my own fintech consulting and development solutions. Uh, so obviously the new power is emerging and it is creating a new path in terms of the entrepreneurship, in terms of uh, mergers, alliances, etc. And also in the political system from Arab Spring to where we are in most parts of Asia, there's still a simmering, should you open up or not, because some have moved further, some are still debating. But my question is on the corporate world, just to kind of make sure that we can focus there. Uh, it's been many years, I mean decades, where the classic model of power has worked. So there are many you know, principles which have been applied, success stories, and how you want to move forward. But even if you have the four quadrants over there, you know, there is no unifying. There are some observations, the way I see it. But, I, you know, but the way forward is still very fuzzy. That's the way it should be. But do you see any common thread on how will organizations manage this thing? You know, even from Facebook to kind of suddenly blowing up or the recent incidences of Airbnb. Uh, I think the, they have taken the charge to open it up, but there is still a very fuzzy way to how do you move forward and what would you think would be the key thing for organizations to focus and embrace the openness and move forward because that still is very unclear. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a key point. And kind of two observations on that. One is I don't think there's a unifying strategy. Every organization is going to need to look at this differently in terms of their strategic direction, where they want to be as an institution. I would actually think about this as, as, as exercising competencies in, in one sense. So everyone in this room, by the nature of you being in this room, you have mastered old power, right? You've worked out how to do that. You know, you, your organization's are relying on it, but they're succeeding because you're good at it. Um, you've advanced your career because you've understood how that works. What we all now need to learn alongside that old power competencies are all these new power skills, right? How do you build a crowd? How do you spread ideas? How do you think about leadership differently? How do you think about getting things right that organizations like NERC and Facebook are getting wrong? Those new power skills come next. And then the organizations and leaders who are going to win will be the bilingual. There'll be those people who are able to speak old power and speak new power and in the moment work out when the right blend of those come along. And so even a Facebook who has done so well with understanding the technology of new power is actually losing a human debate right now, right? What's happening is their crowd is turning against them. They're algorithmically perfect and, 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 and kind of atomically wrong, right? They're just not getting it right in terms of how they understand people. So I think what becomes next, the reason we wrote this book was to say, look, there are a set of very clear new power skills that we can all learn. They are practical skills. We as institutional leaders need to get good at those skills and then be prepared to, to both have tactics and strategies that pull on old power levers and new power levers. Hi, I'm Greg. I sell pretzels shaped like mustaches. Um, so it's a, it's a good business. Yeah, it's pretty pretty straightforward. Um, so as you pointed out, like all everybody here, pretty well grounded in like the world of old power. Do you discuss it all in the book? And I apologize, I haven't read it yet. Um, is it make sense to kind of hire those new power skills into your business, or is it worth the time, talent, and treasure to develop that internally? Well, there's sort of an there's a set of archetypes we argue that you need in uh, in a team, right, to help incorporate new power. And I think one of the most important conclusions is it's often not the outsider. So we contrast in the book the disruptor archetype to the shapeshifter archetype. And what we mean by that, there was this moment 
we talk about where the uh, the New Republic, the venerable old uh, uh, public interest magazine, was uh, the, a new owner hired in uh, this disruptor CEO called Guy Vidra, and he was from Yahoo, and he said, "We're here. We're gonna break shit. We're gonna like. We're gonna like. We're here to like disrupt." And basically, he announces this the next day. The majority of the staff resign um, <laughs> because you know he actually was not well positioned to bring about that kind of digital change. In contrast, you see in organisations these shapeshifter types. You think about the Pope. You know, there's no one who can who can argue against his deep institutional credibility. He's unimpeachable. He's infallible in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, he is a very effective change maker in that context because people can look at him and and see somebody that they can see in themselves, right, within the church structure. Um, and so those characters, those shapeshifter characters, are often much more effective. They're not all you need. There's a number of other archetypes that you need, including people who are more steeped in the new power uh, skills um, than the shapeshifter archetype typically is. But the, the answer is often not bring in uh, what we call a digital beard, who's just basically an outsider who's, who's, who's kept in a, in a cupboard somewhere, uh, opening uh, 3D uh, printing factory, uh, you know, uh, cutting ribbons at those openings. You need someone who's deeply integrated into the structure of the, of the firm. Every audience we've talked to, especially in the corporate world, there is a groundswell of enthusiasm for this with emerging leaders and often up until middle management. That will exist in most institutions because a lot of them have grown up in this world. Where change, in, in an ironic way, change often starts at the top, right? Actually, what we see more often is you see pockets of new power, you see pockets of frustrated new power inside big companies whose leadership just simply aren't prepared to change. They're talking about open innovation, they're sending all the right signals, but actually their organizations aren't changing in a meaningful way. So I think one place the new power conversation needs to go next is not just the C-suite, but also at board level, right? This is a conversation that boards need to start having because they need to reckon the theme of today around these shifts is what boards should be reckoning with. And in that dynamic, they have to recognize that isn't just about changing technology, it's about changing power. Um, I want to thank everyone for the invitation to be here today. I know we have many copies of the books for people to enjoy. And in a new power way, the old power version would be just read the book. But we, of course, want you to go further. Um, please get a copy of the book uh, today. Uh, read the book and then respond to it. Tell us what you think. We're both uh, on Twitter. There we are. Oh, actually, not Twitter. Those are our email addresses. Our Twitter handles are just our full names. And so you know, what, we'd, what we'd invite you all to do is, by all means, send us an email or tweet at us. And over the coming weeks, we're sort of assembling, because the, the response to the book's been fantastic, kind of a community of, of, of practitioners of this work. And so we'd love you guys to be part of that. Um, so we'd invite you to email us or tweet at us, um, and we'll kind of loop you in there. And then also, um, you know, we'd love to hear what's happening in your own organization. So if we can share this thinking at your organization, it's terrific. Or if you've got stories that will help build our work here, please share those stories with us as well. And on that note, it's been an absolute delight. Henry and I have really enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to staying in conversation with all of you in the weeks and months ahead. Have a great conference. Thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.